Hello, friends. Hello once again, my friends. Welcome to another amazing episode of Improv and Magic with me, your friend L.D. Madeira. There's probably some of you out there who may have been asking yourselves, I wonder when L.D. is finally going to talk to more magicians. Well, good news, my friends. That day is today. My guest is an amazing magician who is known and beloved all over the world. She is Carissa Hendricks. Of course, you may know her by her wonderful character, Lucy Darling. Carissa is an award-winning magician, circus stunt performer, and fire eater. She was awarded Stage Magician of the Year twice by the world-famous Magic Castle. She was a recipient of the Carlton Award from the Magic Circle in the UK, and also received Magical Valentine's Magician of the Year Award from Vanishing Magic Magazine and Remarkable Magic. And those are just a few of the many awards she's received over the years. Not only that, Carissa is also in the Guinness Book of World Records for her fire-eating stunt, Longest Torch Teething, and for 24 fire torches ignited using electricity through the human body. Could this person be any more amazing? Carissa has appeared on the cover of various prominent magic magazines, such as Genie, Vanish Magazine, and Penguin Monthly, and has also been on many well-known television shows like Masters of Illusion and Pen and Teller Fool Us. I'll admit, I was a bit nervous going into this interview because Carissa is a big star in magic and, well, I really didn't want to screw this up. But I can say happily that Carissa was incredibly kind and very, very sweet to me. It was like talking to an old friend. I cherished every moment of this interview, and I hope you do too. Before we get this episode started, I have to give a really big thank you to the person who helped make this possible, my friend John Sturk, National President of the Society of American Magicians. John, if you're listening, thank you so much, my friend. This would not have been possible without your help. All right, my friends, enough stalling. Let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, here is my guest, the wonderful Carissa Hendricks. Ladies and gentlemen, I am beyond excited that I am talking to the one and only Carissa Hendricks. Hi, Carissa. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am absolutely over the moon fantastic. I mean, I am a, I'm a fan of yours, and I just cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me today. You are very sweet. This is extremely flattering. <laughs> you are talking to me right now on a ship, right? Yes, I'm uh, I'm on my way back from, um, where were we just? Turks and Caicos uh, on Virgin Scarlet Lady. I'm the magician on the ship at the moment. Um, just did a couple of shows yesterday. Just watched the other magician's show. Having a blast. It is the best contract. Uh, I'm obsessed. <laughs> you know, I've been following you and you are really busy. I mean, it's like show after show after show after show with you. Um, do you enjoy that? Do you love that that busy performance lifestyle? Uh, yes, I do. I do. And I have. It's It has been my 
preference, you know, save for the uh, the year I spent during the pandemic living with um, Richard Miranda, my my acting partners on the online show. Uh, you know, I've been on the road full time for six years. Uh, so I haven't had a permanent address really for, for six years. So it's just been gig to gig to gig to gig. Um, and, and I love it, but I'll be honest in the last four months, it has a little bit caught up with me. Uh, cause the trouble with, you know, having a permanent address is that the, your instinct is to just make sure there's something booked every week. So it's castle house of cards. Um, Chicago Magic Lounge, and then you know you do a couple of theaters in New York, and then you, you do this other thing, and then a couple months on the ship, and then a residency over here. And what you forget is like, oh yeah, the body needs rest. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's my new thing. I've got to add to the calculations of like, oh, I love the touring, I love the show, very grateful, but also, how do I fit in uh, days where there, there's nothing to do? <laughs> <laughs> Well, what is it that keeps you going? I mean, as you as you're constantly on the road and touring and performing, what is it that keeps you motivated to just keep powering through and and just to keep doing it? Well, I, I think the the thing for me is that this was uh, this was like the dream. You know, I grew up in a small town in northern Saskatchewan. I started my show business career in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, with some amazing performers who uh, really primarily focused on the corporate market, which was great market, but I, I knew that I was more interested in uh, more traditional theatrical performing. Um, I definitely wanted to be part of the magic world and get the respect for my peers and, you know, be part of the mucky muck. And, and I've, I'm not really motivated by awards or anything like that, or even money. But I just wanted to like work the big showrooms and have a show that I'm proud of that, you know, really moves people. And, you know, that kind of started happening for me like five, four or five years ago. And so what keeps me going is that this, this was the whole point. This was it. This was what I wanted the whole time. And so it, it feels very silly to like get what you want and then be like, Ugh, never mind. Just kidding. Like, no, of course, I'm going to keep doing this. This is this is the whole point. Um, and there's so much still to be discovered with the character and with magic. You know, I, I found when I was doing more sideshow and circus, which I love, that it just didn't stimulate me intellectually in the way that magic does. I mean, it is impossible to run out of things to know about magic. Um, whereas I found like in, in other forms of entertainment, it didn't take long for me to go, okay, yeah, I sort of get the basics of this and now I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's start with the beginning with you, Carissa. Uh, you mentioned that you grew up in uh, in Canada. Uh, what was growing up like for you? Sure. So we we grew up in uh, it was myself and my younger brother. Uh, my parents had us very young. I believe my mother had me at seventeen, quite young. Uh, so we we were just like it was babies raising babies. So um, we were always doing our best and there wasn't always a ton of money around, uh, but we were, you know, we had family. There's a lot of family up north. And so it was a lot of that, like, northern Canadian culture of, like, you know, family first and potlucks and you go to church and you, you know, your life is very rural in a, in a towny way. And then we moved to Saskatoon, which is a little bigger. And then my dad got a job in Calgary, which is like, quote unquote, the, a big city. You know, now that I'm in America, I don't know how comfortable I, 
I feel thinking of that as like a big city. Um, still, <laughs> when I go back home, it feels like a small town now to me, but it is a big city. And uh, and now we so now we're separated from that culture, from that support, from our family. But we're still like fairly low income, and my dad got a better job, and so now we're we have more money but less support. And so uh, the interesting thing about that is that your extracurriculars as a young person are really dependent on like what options you have where you can go volunteer. Like we're not we didn't have like swim swim instruction money or like uh, you know jujitsu money. We it was if you wanted to do an after school thing, it was going to have to be free. Uh, and so I volunteered a lot um, and like did this program called Art of Youth, which was uh, this amazing thing put on by Youth Volunteer Corps. And uh, you could go and volunteer to be an usher at a theater and they would take these kids, these quote unquote disadvantaged kids out to like paint murals. And they taught us how to juggle and they had a magician come in and teach us a couple of tricks. And I love that program, you know, but the whole focus around it and, and programs like that is like, hey, you're going to make it, you know, you're going to, you're going to really be something someday. It's, you are so smart and you are so clever and, and don't let the world get you down. And that's kind of the energy of it. Um, rather than just like, here's how to paint, right? Like there's like this whole other attitude around it. Uh, and I'll think also because it's Canada, right? Canada's very, has a different kind of social safety net and sort of different kinds of support. Um, and so it was, it was interesting growing up in that environment because, uh, you know, parents are really young. They don't really know what they're doing. Um, they were as much kids as we were is, is how it felt. It felt more like four weirdos, like just trying to make it through rather than like parents and kids sometimes, uh, which was fun and great and silly, but also like kind of often a little, little rudderless. Was there anything in particular that got you interested in wanting to be a performer specifically? I don't know. I think if you had met, if anyone had met me at like 12 or 13, I would have been voted least likely to get into show business. Uh, I was, really? I took drama. Yeah, I took drama class, but I never did well. I never got any part I auditioned for in any school play. Um, I, it's just not my thing. I, I, my grandmother um, was a seamstress. So when we'd go to Grandma Hendrix's house, Grandma Grandpa Hendrix's house, I would go into the sewing room and I would just like make weird costumes. And that was like more of my vibe. And I liked a lot of things about performing. Like I remember watching David Copperfield specials and Max Maven on television when I was really little sitting next to my dad and my dad, you know, enjoyed magic. And he, during the commercial breaks, he'd look at me and go, Hey, how do you think he did that? And I would, you know, I'd be like six. I'd make up some crazy story about, magnets and thread and and it was all none of it was right obviously <laughs> and my dad would go oh yeah i think i think that's it i think he got it and uh that little bit of approval was so satisfying like there's this puzzle that could be known and so there were aspects of entertainment that you know the costume making costuming and and magic and all these things that were really cool but the truth is i had no interest in show business um what happened was during art of youth and like learning some tricks as a kid, I could do a little bit of magic. I could juggle, uh, and I could spin poi and I could eat fire. Those are like skills I had learned by the age of 16 at 16. I get kicked out of the house. I need money. I got to get an apartment. I got to not starve to death. And so my mentor at the time, one of, one of a few mentors I had collected through volunteering, uh, Marsha Mido, 
was the entertainment director for um, Screamfest, which was a haunted house thing. And this is like, I think I get kicked out at the end of September. And she goes, listen, we do 28 days of programming. If you can do five shows a night, five 10 minute shows, they can all be the same show. I can pay you 50 bucks a night. And 50 bucks a night for a kid going to school for like a two, three hour commitment, at, especially at that time, because like, you know, that's t- almost 20 years ago when I was 16. That's, no, it's literally 20 years ago. It's 20 years coming up, 20 years. Uh, was a lot of money. That was enough to get me through school. So yeah, I'm going to throw an act together. Um, so I did an act where I like, I spun poi and I ate fire and I did a card trick and it was good awful, like absolutely horrendous as an act, but I needed the money and starvation is a good motivator. Fear is a good motivator. So, you know, every night I'd go between every show and every night I'd go back to, you know, I'm staying with my friends, um, in the, in one of their little guest rooms for a couple of months. And I would write and I would work on it and I'd watch videos of other performers on YouTube and I would try to figure out what worked and I'd go back and I'd do jokes and some jokes would get laughs and some jokes wouldn't. And by the end of those 28 days, I had 10 pretty decent minutes. But what I had also done is I had performed on this like main stage in front of all of the entertainers in Calgary because Marshall hired lots of other people. Uh, There were roving magicians there. There was other acts there. And they're like, who's this new kid? You know, they don't know I'm 16. Who's this new kid doing these shows, getting good really fast? And so a few of them came up to me, some magicians came up to me, and they were like, hey, do you want to maybe like be a magician's assistant? Or can you do balloon animals? Can you still walk? And I'm like, oh, my God, absolutely. I can do all of that. I could not do that. I had never walked on stilts in my life. I never even seen a stilt walker. I had no idea about balloon animals, but they told me they had lots of work for me at Christmas. And I wanted that work. And so the Halloween money got me, you know, obviously through a lot of November. I bought some balloons. I built a pair of stilts uh, with stuff that I bought at Home Depot. I remember cutting the wood at the Home Depot at the wood cutting place because I didn't have a workshop and like sitting in the parking lot and hammering these stilts together. I had never seen a stilt walker in real life when I taught myself how to stilt walk. Never. Had never seen a still walker. Really? Um, yeah, never had seen a still walker. Later, I like I did it that winter, forgot how, and then bought a pair of bouncy stilts like a couple of years later. And you know, at the t- that that time, by that time, I got in a circus coach, and I remember him che- trying to teach me how to walk on stilts on these like bouncy stilts, which were so different. And thinking like, man, this is so much easier with an instructor. Um, but I didn't know what the standard was for balloons. So I show up to this first gig, doing like Mario's and and pink panthers and stuff everyone else is making poodles you know i don't know what the standard is and so now i i show up at christmas with all these other performers i look like a savant uh but really i'm just trying not to die i'm just trying not to starve (laughs) to death um and so then yeah a lot of those guys like put me on the roster as like a good and i I made the costumes for the still walking thing because i could sew uh and so you know those gigs turned into more gigs and the money was good. It paid better than working at McDonald's and it meant I could focus on my studies, but it was never supposed to be the thing, right? It was always the, a temporary solution until I like really figured out where I was supposed to be. And, you know, eventually, you know, it occurred to me, like trying to do these other things. I was, became a preschool teacher. I did all this other stuff. You know, I just woke up one day and was like, Oh no, this is what I'm for. Like it's, 
it, it was never the goal. It was never some big dream, but it's not working at McDonald's. It's what I'm supposed to be doing. I love the idea of saying yes to something, not knowing whether or not you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the old vaudeville thing, right? Like, and I didn't know that I had never studied vaudeville, but I was, I think I was born a vaudevillian because every story you ever read about old school vaudeville, you know, I mean, I, this is, I think this is Johnny Thompson's story too. It's like somebody came to him, he was like a harmonica player and somebody came to him and they're like, you have a magic show, right? And he's like, oh yeah, of course. You know, whatever, whatever the client wants, you can do it. And then you, you, as long as you got a week, you can do it. Um, so yeah, it's just that it, that lots of people have that story. It's that old vaudeville trait of what do you need? No problem. Give me a week. <laughs> well, you know, coincidentally, um, I mean, I'm also a, a huge mega David Copperfield fan and I've listened to a lot of his interviews and he also talks about how when he first moved to uh, uh, New York about how he starved a lot and him starving was actually a great big motivator for him. So how important do you think it is to have that um, that tenacity when you when you're a performer? I, I think there are lots of good ways to motivate people and starvation is is probably the the least pleasant uh, despite its effectiveness. Like, I think if, there's lots of young people I see getting into magic who are really passionate about the material and they love being on stage. And that is also like a completely legitimate, you know, way to get into it. I, I don't want anyone to need to be a performer. I think, um, I think if you have options, that's better. Uh, for me, it was a good motivator. But I, I think it would have enjoyed it a lot more at the beginning if I didn't have to book the gigs, if I didn't have to be good, if if the stakes weren't so high. So, yeah, it benefited Copperfield. It benefited me. But there are much more pleasant ways, <laughs> way more pleasant ways to do things. Well, I mean, now it's also such a different time because now we have this crazy thing called the Internet where, you know, now we have all these things like social media and TikTok. And, you know, now there's all these avenues where people can get famous without having to starve. Do you see this new internet age as like a really good thing for performers? Um, I, I think it is both a good thing and a bad thing. I think in a lot of ways it has democratized show business in, in a way, right? Like you just, you have your phone, you can make content, um, you, there, it has limited some of the gatekeeping in show business. Like I was very lucky early on that some of my mentors could break me into the industry and I got a lot of attention and protection from people who were fairly influential. And I mean, that's kind of been the story of my entire career is that, you know, I was, I was, a, I was an acrobat, not a good one, but an acrobat. And I managed to like get in with like three influential coaches who had the time to really teach me and sideshow the same thing. I had good mentors in sideshow. I had good mentors um, all along the way. And when I jumped ship from sideshow into magic, there was amazing mentorship to be had in the magic world for me as well. So I've been very lucky. And I think it's much easier to get access to people through social media to get good mentorship and also to like, you know, get out there, get your name out there with social media. But the other problem is those are not, um, they don't translate in the way that people think. So there, there's a lot of people putting a lot of time into in show business who, who want to be comedians or want to be magicians or want to be stage performers, put a lot of time into social media. And then they realize, oh, 
the skills that are required to make good online content are actually quite divorced from the skills required to do a good stage show. And also, unless you've crafted your audience in a very specific way, the people who watch you online are not necessarily going to buy tickets to your show. Like I know people, I won't name names, but I, I was part of a project um, where we were helping do some writing for someone who has millions of TikTok followers. And we did some writing and we did a project for them and they tried to sell tickets and they couldn't sell tickets for this tour because a million TikTok followers did not translate into a million seat butts in the seats. It translated into no butts in the seats. People really liked consuming it in that format and they had no interest in seeing the live version. Now, that's not true for everyone. If you're selling personality and the personality they're going to see on stage is the same personality, they'll come see it live. But if what you're doing is like, exposing magic or doing like really amazing, like short little bite-sized pieces of magic. That's what they want from you. They don't want a long form show necessarily. So uh, it's good, but it's also, I think it's, it can be a big time suck for certain people. Yeah, I definitely hear you. It's also interesting how like so much of the magic that you see being advertised and promoted is what you said, these little bite-sized little moments of magic, which definitely became a, a big thing during the pandemic, obviously. Um, do you see that as like something useful creating like bite-sized little pieces of magic? Do you think that's good for the craft or do you think that magic should still be something where it's carefully woven and a lot more thought is put into it? There's a great Eugene Berger quote about how the house of magic has many rooms. Um, and I think that, you know, lot, there's lots of really like uh, Xavier Mortimer's videos online and a few other people, um, Jackie Yu, do a great job of, of making these really visual, lovely pieces of magic that are very digestible. Um, Misty Lee did a whole thing on YouTube, a whole YouTube series called uh, Unicorn Wednesdays, which I thought was like just a really wonderful display of magic. I mean, it can be done very well and it, it has been done really well. Um, I don't think it hurts magic necessarily the the issue is for me is that uh we're not the issue but the interesting thing i'm noticing is that if you what you do when you're getting into magic what your focus is is gonna you know that's the thing in your brain you're working on and so if you're working on a trick you could you only have to do correctly once for the camera that is not super repeatable that is very angly and that's what you're really good at you're really good at like learning new things really quickly and doing them for the camera and doing them well and getting attention. Amazing. That's not what a stage show is. A stage show is doing some, like the show I'm doing here on Virgin. I'm working in the round with a mirror behind me. Oh, wow. It has to be perfect. Every, and I also have a, a balcony. So they're above me. They're below me. They're behind me. They're to my sides. Uh, I have nowhere to hide angle wise. Um, and every show, the audience is completely different because the, the crowds that want to come on the Virgin Voyages to Miami and Turks and Caicos are very different than the ones that want to come with us to the Dominican Republic. So and also it changes based on who's got, like, is it a weekend voyage? Is it a weekday voyage? That's going to change the demographic. And you've got to be ready to, to cater to that. And it has to be perfect because everyone here has a phone on them and they're, they're sneakily filming clips of my show. So you can't, I can't flash I can't make a mistake. I can't make a mistake from any angle at any time ever. And sometimes my show is at one o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, one o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, you have to do a perfect show 
with no mistakes that rocks the house down. It's a very different skill set than making, you know, conceiving of and making a really beautiful, fantastic, amazing one minute, 30 second clip where you do the trick once and then the trick is burnt for you. You can't do that trick online again tomorrow, right? That trick doesn't exist. You might as well throw it away. You got to buy a new thing from Penguin or from Vanishing Ink and you got to start over. Those are different skill sets and, and that's fine, but it's, it is the same as somebody who did mentalism their whole life being like, I'm going to be an amazing card cheat. You're going to, yeah, some of those skills are transferable, but most of them are not. You're pretty much starting over. And for me, it's the, you know, all these people doing this beautiful online work and then they want to, they want me to recommend them for the ship. And I'm like, you don't have, you don't have a show. I adore you. You're amazing. What you do is great, but you, I cannot recommend you for a ship. You have nothing to offer them. You don't have material and everything you do have is angly and you only ever did it once. So what's your show? <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's tough. And, and, uh, and I direct, I direct for a lot of other magicians and I, do lots of coaching and lots of writing. And the reason I'm saying this is because there are three people right now that I'm having this exact conversation with and I'm watching them go through these existential crisis of they work so hard on this online content and it really is amazing. They're incredible, but it hasn't translated to work in the way they were hoping. And so now they're going, okay, I got to start over. And some of these people are turning 30 and they're like, I don't have any live performing skills. I forgot to acquire live performing skills. And it's hard to explain to them like, yeah, you're going to, it's going to just hurt for like two, three years while you sort of figure out who you are on stage. Do you, and I know this is a dorky question, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you remember the first trick that you, that you learned and got really good at and performed in front of people and got that rush that you get when you fool someone for the first time? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, unfortunately I don't. I don't remember because it was all really, um, um, well, how, how do I explain this? For me, my introduction to show business, because it was about it being a job, everything was, all the performing skills were ancillary. The goal was be a purchasable product and a palatable show. So I was putting tricks in the show that I thought would be really fun to watch, that would create good images that I could put back on my website. I was trying to think of things that the description of them would be great. I was really thinking more of the sales of it all. So I, I didn't really focus early on on the joy of fooling people. I really feel like I had two, two births as a magician. I had an early love of magic that turned into this, you know, job in fast food, the fast food of magic, where I was, I was a magician's assistant. I was doing walk around. I was doing things, but none of those tricks made me excited. They were just about doing my job. They were just about flipping burgers and, and, you know, selling, slinging hash. Uh, and then, you know, I fell in love with magic separately and came back to those tricks and understood them differently and saw the value in them. And then kind of experience that thing of like, wow, I just fooled the pan. Like this person, I, I injured this person almost. Like they loved it, but it, but it, I can see how it like scraped the inside of their brain up a little bit. You know, a couple of days ago, I did my show here on the ship. And then I was just out for dinner. There's some beautiful restaurants here and I was just eating. 
And, you know, it's such a social shift that if I go take myself out to dinner and I have a book, I'm only going to read nine pages before someone talks to me, which I which is lovely. And so there were these wonderful firefighters here and they started talking to me and uh, they found out I was the magician on the ship and they wanted to see a trick. And um, I don't have any props. And so I'm improvising stuff with things lying around. And then I did some Georgia Magnet stuff for them. So I'm, you know, I'm pulling out of the backlog of my material. Like Georgia Magnet stuff is is from when I did my touring 10 and one in my early to mid twenties, like that's old in my head. And I'm watching them sort of figure out this woman has nothing. She, this person has showed up with no material. She, she's taking things out of our wallets and doing magic with them. Oh my God. And you could just see it like scramble their little brains. And I mean, it's so satisfying. And it, that feeling you're talking about gets more satisfying for me every year that passes. But there was none of it for me at the beginning because it was just about do a good enough job to get hired again so that we have money to pay rent. Like I, that whole experience you're talking about, that's all very new to me because I didn't even think to perceive it. Hmm. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, what was it about? Because you're also known for your work in circus performing. What is it about the work in circus performing that really appeals to you? Ooh, I, circus is a really wonderful art form because it is so compelling to watch. Um, it's always a story, wh whatever story you add to it, the story that's sort of happening organically is that here is a, a human form that is capable of so much. And I also have a human form and if I really tried, my human form could do what that human form can do, whether it's juggling or acrobatics or aerial. You know, these are stories about perseverance and about overcoming things and about human capability. And so then you put a story on top of that story, right? So it's already the reality of, wow, that person is hanging from their hair or wow, that person is hanging upside down by their toes or that person is doing a backflip. Those are con connective moments because you know that your body sometimes has trouble walking up three flights of stairs and so there is a connective thing about seeing what you know humans are capable of and therefore you're capable of and i loved that i loved the empathy of circus and on on top of that you can make interesting body shapes and it's you know dance beyond dance sometimes where you're doing these impossible moves and it's so beautiful and then again we get to like costume and add secondary story on all of that. And I, I loved it. I loved circus. And I also kind of loved that um, I was always the least flexible, weakest person in every troupe I was ever in. And the only thing I had to offer was that um, I've always really been quite a good performer, like an organic sense of it. And I, I was fearless. If, if I stood in some, if someone was like climb onto my shoulders, I would just climb onto their shoulders. No fear. You know, this person will catch me. I'll be fine. I've fallen. Falling can't be that harmful. I, I, I never did flying trapeze as like a job, but I did train on it in the Dominican Republic and a couple of other times throughout my life. And I, I could not do it right now. Obviously, I'm not strong right now, but I couldn't do it out of that context at all because the way I did it was that someone would go release and my hands would let go. There was no thinking. Someone would just say, and now you let go and you tuck and my body would let go and tuck. It would just do what it was told. And that was the advantage I had was I was like, oh, yeah, someone can like tap into my physiology and, and skip my frontal cortex and just make my body do, do the acrobatic moves. 
Um, I, I loved how quickly the learning curve was too. It was of just like, you know, you start working on an acrobatic routine and it, pretty quickly you can add new stuff and it can evolve and you get good fast. And who doesn't like working on stuff where they get good at stuff fast? It was really satisfying. And even now, hmm. circus is some of my favorite stuff to watch. You are in the Guinness Book of World Records for fire eating, correct? Yes. Yeah, for a particular fighting trick. Yeah, do tell. So um, when I was doing Sideshow, and I really thought, you know, Sideshow was going to be my thing. That would, You know, I had studied acrobatics, I had studied juggling, I had studied all this stuff, but I, I was just so enthralled by Sideshow and the history of Sideshow. And I, I've always loved Ripley's Believe It or Not and Guinness Book of World Records. Like, you read those when you're a kid. Uh, it occurred to me pretty quickly, like, that's what's done. Like, in, in magic, if you want to be successful in magic, often you will work certain venues and go after certain awards. In Sideshow, you get world records. That's what you do. Um, and so it was already in my head. And then a couple of my friends uh, uh, did this show in Italy, La Show de Record on Channel 4. Uh, they got hired to do a Guinness World Record show. And they were asked if they knew anyone who could do a world record. At the time, it was quite a high-level fire eater. Uh, pretty well known for doing that. And they recommended I do a fire eating world record. So these TV show people call me. They gave me like three or four records to pick from. Um, I picked two. There were two different records I was kind of thinking I would try to go after. And one of those two was the longest time to hold fire in your teeth, a lit flame in your teeth, uh, which is a trick called a human torch, uh, human candle. So, uh, torch or torch teething is what it's listed as in the book of, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records. And so I practiced that. I went to Montreal. Um, I had help from a coach. I practiced that one. I practiced the other one. The other one did not happen. They told me the record was 32 seconds. I managed to get the tooth hold up to like 51 seconds. I'm like, I got this. So I called the TV show people. I'm like, hey, I got a 50 second pass. I, I think we're good to go. Book the plane ticket. So they booked the plane ticket and uh, I'm all excited. I'm keeping myself kind of trained. I'm doing lots of fighting gigs to keep myself kind of at the top of my game. And a week before I fly out, I get an email from the TV show. Oh, there was a typo. Uh, it's actually not 50, it's not 32 seconds. It's a minute and 32 seconds. And I, there's no way. I can do a minute, 32 <laughs> seconds of fire in my teeth. There's no, that's not humanly possible at the time. So, uh, but I'd never been to Italy and I wanted to go. And I was like, well, this contract is not, you know, contingent on me actually getting my world record. So yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, so I fly out to Italy. They have a fancy car pick me up. I get taken to this hotel. Um, we spend two days doing photo shoots for everybody. Uh, and I realized, um, on this particular TV show, there are only two women out of 38 people cast, uh, doing world records. There are two other women who are world records. There was the world's smallest girl and the world's most tattooed woman. Uh, but there was also like, a the world's oldest gymnast. She had to do an act and I was going to get this fire world record. So they were explaining to me like there are people who are world records and there are people who do world records. And so the producer comes in at one point and goes, Hey, we need you to get your world record because we need like female representation. And there's only two, we only have two people. So we need you both to get your records. And I respond, 
this conversation is not helpful. I am obviously going to do everything I can to try to do this, but uh, this how how is you telling me I have to, um, making it any more likely I will? I, you're asking me to be the best in the world at something on command. Well, good luck. Um, and so when I, you know, I had that in my head when we got, went to our photo shoot and I burnt my lip a little bit doing the photo shoot for the book. And I'm like, okay, well, now I'm absolutely not <laughs> going to get the world record. There's no way. I've already burnt myself. So the next day they bring in the studio audience and they put everyone there. And Marco Frigatti, who is our official from Italy, is talking to me and he asks if he can do anything for me. And I was like, you know what, actually part of the hardest thing of this is it's very painful. And you have to keep your breathing at a certain pace. And so if you could give me my like 10 second marks, that could, I can count against that. It'll give me a connection to the outside world from outside my body. That'd be helpful. And he goes, absolutely. So, you know, I kneel, I put the fire in my teeth and I hear Marco count 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. And then nothing. He stops counting. And so now I'm, in my head, and I don't know if it's been three minutes or five seconds, but it's horribly painful. And I am so mad at Marco Brigatti. I'm so mad at him. You had one <laughs> job, you know, you, this, <laughs> come on. And so I tried to last as long as I could. You know, I, I removed the flame from my teeth and did like a little move because I wanted to maintain my pride and a hundred percent sure there's no way. Now I'll remind you this TV show is being filmed in Italy. So and I do not speak Italian, despite my fabulous overpronunciation of Marco Frigatti. Um, <laughs> so I have a little earpiece in my ear and they have a translator translating everything because we're doing an interview live and I speak English and she goes in, she voices over and she then translates into my ear. And so I stand up and there's like a somber vibe and I'm like, okay, I definitely didn't get it. And so I'm standing there being like, and the translator says in my ear, and a new record is set at two minutes and one second. And I lose all composure. I'm like, ah! like there's a clip somewhere online of me just like losing my mind because I was I was not expecting the bat. I was not expecting I was not expecting to win and not expecting to beat it by like almost 30 seconds. Um, and it was great. And so, you know, I won, I got to hang out with all the other winners, like some of the guys from the Harlem Globetrotters were there and uh, this like cool Bollywood choreographer. And we all went and had tiramisu and it was so fun. And we wandered around, you know, Rome, it was incredible. <laughs> and, uh, and then six months later, they aired the TV show. And I see Marco standing there and he counts 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 a minute, minute 10. And I get to learn in that moment, he counted the whole time, but the pain was so intense that my brain couldn't receive outside stimulus anymore. And I had filtered him out. And oh, so wow. I had been <laughs> mad at him for six months over nothing, over absolutely nothing. But it, it was life-changing. First of all, it was a lot of money. Um, it was the, one of the first times I really negotiated like well for myself and got like a good amount of money. Uh, and so suddenly I had like a little bit of spending money and I applied to go to One Yellow Rabbit's summer theater camp and I went, um, I got in, I had to talk them into it, but they let me go. Uh, the, and the lab, the One Yellow Rabbit lab in Canada is one of, in my opinion, one of the best theatrical programs you can do. 
because it's more about theater creation. It's really holistic, lovely program. And I learned so much. Um, and so I, and I was able to pay for that because of, of, of that, but also now I had this Guinness world record and I was in every newspaper across Canada and I, you know, my bio on my website changed and overnight I went from like this obscure Canadian performer who was like doing okay for themselves to this like national name for a little bit. And they started calling me Canada's sideshow darling. And I booked a, a, a cross Canada tour called uh, Canada sideshow darling. And so the, they're the Canadian sideshow darling. And so I did this like bar tour. So then when I started doing more character work, I decided that each of the characters would keep the last name of darling to like preserve that moment because that was sort of the first time I got any like big status bump and it went from like, Oh yeah, this is how I pay rent to like, Oh, this, this could be a thing like this. I mean, I, I need to start having some bigger dreams because I, I could like make it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) How many times did you burn yourself preparing for that world record out of curiosity? Every time, every time it is not possible to do (laughs) that trick and not burn yourself. So I would like train for it and then I would take three days to heal and then I would train for it and I'd take three days to heal. It is, I burnt myself every single time. It was absolutely miserable. But you know, what does it feel like for you to know that you are now in the Guinness Book of World Records and you're part of Ripley's Believe It or Not? That's gotta be an incredible feeling for you because there's not a lot of people that can just be able to say, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm in Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, how does, what is that feeling like for you? So, you know, it, it, okay, here's what I will say. It felt great immediately because, and especially the moment for me was when I got into the Ripley's Believe It or Not comic book, when they drew it. That was the moment where I was like, ah, I'm amazing. But the truth <laughs> is about all this stuff, like, you know, I just won Stage Magician of the Year at the Magic Castle a second time and um, Alan Slater, all this stuff. The, the truth nobody tells you is that your brain cannot help but move the goalposts. So the second you accomplish something like that, it's great, you're thrilled, and then immediately your brain goes, well, if I got it, it can't really be that difficult. And you <laughs> you find all these ways to sort of discount it. And so, you know, and it was at this point, it was like six, seven years ago that I won that. And I, I have, I did win a couple more Guinness World Records after that, but only people only really care about your first world record. Um, so I, at one point I had three, I think now I'm back down to like, I only have two re- standing records or whatever, but also who cares? Like it, it's great, but it's also, it's also kind of all meaningless, right? Like the, the awards, the accomplishments, all this stuff, it, it's, it's great for selling tickets. Um, but what really matters is how many people laughed in that show, how, how many people gasped, how many people left saying, I loved that. I love that show. Like that's what, that honestly is what means more to me than, oh yeah, a while ago, you know, I'm in the Guinness Book of Records. Cool. But I accomplished it. So it can't really be that difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's something that I'm very excited to ask you about now. Where did Lucy Darling come from? Oh, great. So I started doing characters um, in my kids show to start out with. Um, I saw a lot of other people did like characters in their kids show. A lot of people did clowning. And I was like, that'll be fun for me. And it'll keep it more separate from the adult corporate stuff I do. 
And then I really enjoyed that. So I started creating these like roving characters, like uh, your fairy stepmother was originally a, a roving character. Um, so like these people I would invent. And the more I got into like doing character work, the more it sort of took over. Uh, you know, I remember being in a restaurant <laughs> with my friend, um, John Reed, and there was a woman sitting across from us in a different booth with her friends. And she would have been 55, maybe all her friends were 55. She had this short little haircut and she was, uh, a, clearly her kids had just all moved out of the house and you could hear in the way she was talking this like loneliness and this sorrow, but it was covered by this waspy, you know, she was trying to put on a show for her friends. And it, she was so fascinating to me to watch because she didn't know she was doing a character, but she was. And I ate her personality. I just ate it. I just watched her and then it was mine. And I named the character in my head, Diane. And then I created an act where, you know, Diane is this, um, hi, I'm so excited to be here. Um, my friends uh, are here in the back. Hello, hello, yes. And also my son, Zachary. Zachary, where are you? Zachary, he's here. Anyway, um, <laughs> I just thought, you know, I have this hula hoop and this deck of cards and I thought, why not? You know, and she's just doing it for the first time. And so it's this act and you just watch her like fail miserably and it's delicious and the audience is so on her side. Uh, and so, you know, I've been creating characters forever. And when you start creating characters and it happens more and more, your brain just sort of changes. It sort of works differently. And so it goes from like a very deliberate process of creating a character to you see someone and you just eat their soul. And then sometimes this thing like comes out from your insides. And Lucy was one of those. I had been watching a lot of old timey movies, a lot of um, Jessica Gabor, Eartha Kitt, Mae West, Catherine Hepburn. And, uh, and also I've been watching a lot of Star Trek and there's Q is in Star Trek. And I love the idea that Q was this, like this lazy, lonely, bored God. And I just thought, what an interesting character as a magician to be like, you're not doing tricks. I'm not performing for you. I'm bored. I'm just <laughs> doing whatever it takes to elicit a response so that you will feel the need to entertain me. And so I had this idea for this character, but I had not done any characters as a magician because I had been praised quite a bit by the magic community about doing this very serious, authentic magic. And because I have an acting background and so I could do this, you know, authentic, very serious magic. And, uh, and so I felt very discouraged. And I told a few people about this idea about Lucy and everyone was very, uh, no, it's a terrible idea. You know, magic characters of magic are always a bit cheesy. Don't do it. Okay, and then I was at the Atlanta Harvest convention and I saw Zabrecki perform for the first time and he was outstanding and it was so inspiring and he was running a workshop a day after the convention and I didn't have a ton of money at the time, but I changed my flights and I paid for the extra day and I added a day of hotel and like whatever it took to do this thing and I went and it was like a day-long workshop of character work and stuff like that and Zabrecki was great and I pitched this idea as part of the class and he said you've got to tell me what happens with that. It's such a cool idea. And that was all of the, I needed. I just needed one person to be like, yeah, it's a great idea. You should do that. And so when I got back to Canada, I booked, uh, I sent an application into the Melbourne Magic Festival and I started working on it. And I hired an accent coach and the timeline was really 
crunched, which was great for me to work on it. Uh, and once I had the voice, the next thing I realized I needed was the look. And I bought some clothes and I sewed some stuff and it was fine. But really the moment I had it was when I had the voice and the wig. I went through like nine wigs to get to that wig. And when I saw the way it made my face small and the, how drag it was and the sound of her, it was like, yeah, that's who she is. That's what she is. And I didn't have a lot of time to rehearse or to like practice the material um, before I went to Australia. So I was like just practicing the magic of it and learning the script, but I wasn't, I didn't really have a chance to do the show. I really wanted to premiere it in Australia. And I remember getting to Australia and doing this like burlesque gig right before the festival started because I didn't want the first time I ever did Lucy to be an hour long show. So it's this little burlesque show. And I was like, okay, Lucy will come out and she'll do like a quick card trick and maybe she'll fire eat. Uh, and they were like, you have eight minutes. And uh, it's this incredible burlesque show in, in Australia called Mulan Beige. I, by the way, I'd never been to Australia. I didn't know anyone there. That was the whole point because I was pretty <laughs> sure this was going to be a horrible, miserable failure. And I didn't want anyone to find out. Uh, and so I go to this burlesque show and I'm on like fourth. And the thing that happened before me was a guy who stripped down to an outfit of just kitchen utensils. And he had like a little tiny colander over his penis Oh that was the, the act that was on before me. And then when I came out there, I saw there was a baby in the audience. And and I ceased to exist. And Lucy took over. And Lucy improvised seven minutes about the colander and the baby. And then I remember going, oh, like out of this fugue state going, I got to do a trick. And so then I like did a little quick little fire eating thing. I walked off stage and I, and I, everyone was like, Whoa, that was amazing. And I remember sitting backstage going, what the hell just happened? Like I, I had never done a character that was so strong that like came out of me in that way. Every other character had, you know, you do, when you do a character, you know, you're acting like there is a deliberateness about it. You're holding it up the whole time. But immediately with Lucy, it was so easy, like to move into her and to stay in character. And she was such a strong presence and her motivations were so clear. Uh, and then I did the festival and it, they had to hold over for extra shows because it kept selling out and I won the comedy award and I got booked to the Magic Castle for the first time on that act. And I did the summer tour with the fringe festivals and, and you know, it, it, over the course of six months, my whole life changed. I went from being this like obscure close-up magician, mostly known for sideshow to being this entity that everybody everybody was doing interviews with me everyone wanted me i did the lounge for the first time like i <laughs> I, I it was an overnight success and i i couldn't keep up like i it was a completely overwhelming experience like i i was having trouble like juggling my visa at the time because it was a six-month visa and i was like god how do i get all these gigs in, in this six-month period um and a year and a year and a month after that first time, oh no, two years and a month after that first time that Zabrecki said, hey, this is a good idea. I was performing with him at this really great show in Vancouver that he had hired me to do. So I was performing like this opening act for him. And then a year after that, we did like a double act as part of this convention. And it was just so crazy to go from like, this is like my hero. This is the greatest act I've ever seen. And now like, I feel very comfortable sharing a stage with him in two years. It was just the most insane whirlwind 
of nonsense and it's still happening. Like it still just keeps, it just keeps blowing up over and over again. And every time I think like, okay, this is the top. I can just coast. Like this is what it was supposed to be. Then, you know, just recently we got, we got, I got hired to do the lead for Teatros and Zani. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like the, <laughs> That's my dream gig. So I need a new dream because that was genuinely the craziest thing I could imagine. And now it's just my next contract. <laughs> I was recently watching um, a clip on YouTube of one of your performances at the Magic Castle where you're performing your routine called a hide and seek. And I remember I'm watching it and I'm just howling, howling with laughter uh, to the point where my wife actually walked in and said, are you okay? Because I loved how before the trick even begins, just your way of talking to the crowd and getting to know them and being able to improvise on the spot with these people who you have no idea what they're going to say or how they're going to react to you. How much fun is that to be able to just be that character and let that character take over, especially when you're talking to the crowd and making that connection with them? It's very fun. Um, but it's also, so the, the effortlessness that you see is an illusion. It is maybe the best trick I do because when, when the audience member says something, my, I'm, controlling my face. I am deliberately resting my face. I'm neutralizing my face to just look like I'm listening. But what is happening in my brain is like a 90 mile an hour calculus situation of what did he say? What did it sound like? Is Lucy, could Lucy misunderstand that in a funny way? Um, is, is no words most interesting here? Is like reacting to it the better choice? Can I just do a face? Like right now, I really, really try to do punchlines that are just reactions because I think that's like this that really shows up it really draws people in it asks so little of them it just invites them into the experience that Lucy's having I think it builds such empathy for that character and so I'm do I'm like I'm I'm a joke writing machine in that moment I'm coming up with nine ideas and then selecting an idea and then I'm still in my body going oh because sometimes the idea comes really quickly and you have to choose to not just blurt it out because you're like that guy goes like oh I'm a plumber and you're like Meh. You know, it looks like, oh, that's clearly just a, a joke they have in their Rolodex. That's clearly something, you know, they say every night. I don't want them to feel that way. I want the, to feel like I've never said this before. And so I'm asking myself, does this sound too generic? Blah, blah, blah. But also I'm letting the audience, I'm acting the moment of hearing him, reacting to hearing him, thinking about it, coming up with the idea, enjoying the idea. So the audience also has a moment of like, oh, they, she's got something. She's going to. She's got a little something there and then I give it to them so that it builds anticipation. So it is fun, but it is also the hardest I'm working in my show. There are like two pieces of sleight of hand in the show that are a bit knuckle busty and like really hard, but the hardest thing in the show is that back and forth improv because it is, it, I mean, I, I hold myself to a very high standard, but it also has to be in character and it also has to support the magic and move the narrative we're creating with the show forward. So in character, but also in world, in universe, does it make sense that that's how she would feel about that? You know, and then also like making sure that even I'm basically mm. an insult comic. Am I being respectful of people's boundaries? Am I punching down? I try. I mean, there's, there's a reason why I mostly talk to men in the show because of patriarchy. I can get away with a lot more because it's much more difficult to punch down in those situations. Um, 
but you know, there's certain people in my show I never call on because I haven't worked out as an, as a, a, you know, a humanist. I haven't worked out the most respectful way to like pick on a person like that. Like I'll, I'll pick on gay men and gay women all the time because I feel very comfortable, you know, knowing what's appropriate and knowing where the line is with them. But there's certain things where I'm like, culturally, I'm like, Oh, that's not for me to make a joke about that. That's not my role. That's not for me to touch. And so I might avoid picking certain kinds of people because I wouldn't be able to do as much with them. Hmm. You know, I've been talking to a lot of uh, improvisers on this podcast and one thing that we commonly talk about is how when you play a character, that character is you and not you at the same time. So I'm curious, how much of Carissa is in Lucy Darling? That's a good question. I mean, she she is aspects of me. She is my, um, she is my frustration. Like that frustration that Lucy <laughs> has is is very much my real frustration. Uh, she is my impatience. Um, she is my love, like my true, truthful, deep, passionate love for the audience. You know, I, I have so much genuine love for people that choose to spend their time supporting and enjoying live entertainment, the, who prioritize that. They, those are my favorite people. They feed me. They fund me. They they laugh at my jokes. Like. I have a overwhelming love for them and that Lucy gets that from me, but her impatience is, is, is a little different than my impatience and her, um, her wit and her word choice and her, you know, there's tons of stuff I know about that Lucy doesn't know about. And that's one of the hardest things is like, Lucy doesn't know what a banker is. She doesn't know what a, she doesn't know what an IT professional is. Um, mm. But I choose to let her know about D and D because I know about D and D. And so if there's a D and D, someone makes a D and D reference, I love that she just knows everything about D and D. So she's a she knows D and D. But there's lots of times where people will say something, and the the correct comedy choice, the correct character choice, is to not know what they're talking about. And so that's the hardest thing is her not knowing things I clearly know, uh, and then not accidentally tipping the fact that oh I just pretended to not know for the rest of the show. So. You know, she is me. She she is a, a an aspect. She's picked up aspects of myself. And the thing I also do is there are parts of the show where I am speaking through the character, where the the character says something, but it's really me, the artist, saying that thing. And I the tone changes. I don't drop character, but you can hear that they're not really Lucy's words. Um, but I don't know. It's it's. I feel less like it's me and not me. I feel like it really is not me. It, it was the aspects of Lucy that she has that are mine. Those were chosen six years ago when I created her. Now, when she goes on stage, it feels so different from me. It feels so separate that sometimes it's really hard to remember what I said because it feels almost like this person like retreats and goes into more of an editing position. And then Lucy comes to the front and Lucy does the show. What is your process in creating a routine for Lucy Darling? Like, what do you think about, you know, aside from, you know, how to pull the trick off, what are some of the things that you are processing as you're trying to create a new act for Lucy to do? Well, let me give you some of the things in my notes app. Because here's, here's how everything starts, is I'll get like a little button of an idea, and then I'll just think about it obsessively for like nine days. So, um, okay, so here's, the, here's a note in my app right now of something I'm working on. Shaggy dog joke but actually it's a trick. 
right? What does that mean? I don't even <laughs> know yet. Um, but I will spend like probably the next four days like rolling it over my head and writing out some ideas. The book production routine I have is actually two separate ideas I worked on that then I realized went really well together. So I worked on for like a year and a half. I got this idea of like, oh, how interesting is it that like when a, a product sucks, a marketer will slap the word magic onto it and then just put it on, 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 put it out there, put it on as seen on TV and try to sell it. Magic bullet, magic car wash, magic mark, you know, everything, this magic word is, is such become such a marketing word. And isn't that so interesting? And what if there was like a fake fight? Like what if magicians were mad that like that word was being watered down? What if I could like pretend that anyways, I wrote this whole standup routine about it. And then I was doing this book production routine that had no routine around it, but it was a great trick. And the original version of that trick was that uh, I, I say, oh, ma you know, I think of magic as an art form. And so tonight I'm going to make sure you all learn that magic is an art form. And yeah, but I do need to offer you something as a point of comparison. So I'll begin the act tonight by reading the first 92 pages of Crime and Punishment. <laughs> and then I would magically produce crime and punishment. So, but that's like a throwaway. I wanted to do a whole trick. And when I realized, oh, I've got this good trick. I've got this good concept. They go together. Now it's a full six minute routine where I make two books appear um, that I can open a show with if I want. Uh, and so a lot of it is just this idea of like, it's a, a little thing will like climb into my brain and I'll just let it roll around and I'll just suck all the creative energy out of it until looking at it doesn't excite me anymore. And then I'll just put it away. And eventually those things will come together. Like I, I don't put a lot of pressure on myself to write things or to come up with things. I just go where the dopamine is. I just let myself focus on what's interesting. But what I do on top of that is I also ask myself like, what's missing in the show? What kind of thing structurally do we need that we don't have? Or what kind of trick are we not pursuing? And so as much as I do kind of let myself run around, if there's something that's that I go, oh, that actually solves a, a problem we have, then I will like push myself towards that a little bit more. Like right now, the show is really good. It's really tight. I've got lots of material. I've got three full versions of the show, which is great. And I also have a whole separate show that I can do if they lose my luggage out of my carry-on. That show was real a show I was really proud of three years ago, but I was looking at it like a week and a half ago. And I was like, this is only okay. Like, like my stage show now has gotten so much better that this, this would be such a downgrade to do this show. I do have the material. I could do it. It's a fine show. I would like to get this show closer to where this show is. So it wouldn't feel like such a compromise to do this suitcase show. Uh, and so now that's interesting. So now like this whole idea of like shaggy dog, but it's a trick. Whereas I might have instinctively like tried to make that a big stage piece. Now I might go, okay, but is there a way to like do that, answer that question with just a card trick or answer that question with like something with envelopes. So that's going to like shape the way I work on that. So it's, it's a combination of goofy, silly nonsense and just playing around. And then also recognizing that like, this is my job and I am trying to solve practical problems in my show. So I do need to consider like, what is, you know, do we have a strong enough finale? Do we have a strong enough beginning? Is there a trick that teaches people who Lucy are? Is there a trick that teaches the audience how to be the kind of audience that is going to most enjoy the show? Do I have all the elements of the show I want? Great. Do I have an, two of those elements so that I can build a second show that does the same thing or 
do I want to do something different? So, you know, you've got the utility aspect, but then also you've got the like crazy weird artist mind where you're like, I'm just going to think about, you know, I remember I spent eight days thinking about cutlery and like bar cutlery, like those little twisty spoons. I bought every twisty spoon and bar gadget and bit of nonsense that had ever been made. And I, I have a full notebook just of like half finished ideas and I'm doing none of those, but I know at some point I'll go, ah, ah, remember that thing we figured out about the twisty spoon. This is where that goes. So that, you know, it's just, it's like a whole brain full of half made sandwiches. (laughs) That is awesome. That is awesome. In 2019, you were awarded Magician of the Year by the Magic Castle. That had to have been such a very proud and special moment for you. What is that feeling to, first of all, to just be performing there in the first place, knowing that that's where some of the greatest of the greats have stepped and performed and have received that same award that you received? When I did the castle for the first time, I found a little spot. This is the kindest thing I ever did to myself. I found a little spot on the wall and I put my hand there just to like really be present and be like, I made it. I'm performing at the magic castle. This is amazing. And every time, and I've worked there like 20 times since then, I put my hand in the same spot to like connect myself to that moment of like, you get to be here. You get to be in this special incredible place and it always like makes me want to cry so to be awarded that award was a huge deal because it's not like three guys in a room picking someone it is a vote from the entire membership these are people who had to audition to be members of the castle who paid dues every year these are people who see so much magic who are so well informed and they all had to decide I'm the best. So here's how that experience was. We were like early on in the pandemic and uh, I got this email from Max and Max, Max Maven and I were very good friends. I considered, you know, in retrospect, I I realized how much of a mentor he was, although we we wouldn't have used that, those words for each other at the time. Uh, And he had, he had called me a couple of days before to say, do you want your name on the award or should it be Lucy's name? (laughs) And I went, oh, I don't know. What do you think? And he goes, well, Lucy, it's Lucy's victory. So I think it should be Lucy's name, but it's up to you. And I was like, no, you're right. It should be Lucy's name. And none of that conversation felt suspicious. That didn't, nothing went into my thick noggin. I didn't know I was nominated, whatever. Didn't think there was a chance in holy hell I would win. And I get an email a couple of mornings later from Max and it says the magic. And it's a chunk of paragraph. I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, Max wrote this really ambiguously. It reads like I won. People are going to think they won. Like this is the, oh, sorry, you didn't win email. And it looks like I won. And I'm like, I'm going to read it again. I'm even just reading it weird. I read it four times thinking it was just badly <laughs> written and I was misreading it. Like my reading comprehension was bad because it was the first thing I read in the morning. And then it occurred to me like, oh God, no, it's, it's me. Okay. And so... You know, at the time, it's a lockdown. There's nowhere to go. We can't celebrate. Nothing to do. So I walk into the other room with my two roommates, um, you know, Richard and Miranda, who were doing the online show with me. 
And I looked at Richard, like, Ryan wasn't even up yet. I just said, I, I think I just won stage magician of the year. And he went, great. Because he's, he's not a magician. He had no idea what that meant. He was like, that's great. And I went, yeah. And then there was like a three minute silence. And he goes, do we order cupcakes? And I went, yeah. And then we ordered cupcakes. And then that was the whole victory. Like, there was no party. There was nothing. Um, and it was great. What it did do for me is that I think we all have this little voice in our head that says, I fooled everyone. Like I'm actually incompetent and I'm a terrible magician and everyone's just being nice to me so that I don't cry. Like nobody actually likes my show, but, and then, and then my brain for the first time I had a, a second voice and that other voice would go, yeah, but you did win stage magician of the year. So like, <laughs> You can't be the worst. You can't literally be the worst. And then, so then they didn't hold the awards the next year because, you know, obviously pandemic. Uh, and then they held the awards again for the first time this year. And I got nominated again. So I won last time they did awards. I got nominated this time. There's no way I'm going to win two years in a row. That's never, no woman at the Magic Castle in the history of the Magic Castle has ever won any award twice in a row, ever. It's never happened. It's not happening this year. And Chuck, messages me and goes, hey, are you going to fly out for the awards? And I'm like, I'm not going to fly out. And he's like, we think you should fly out. And I was like, no, I'm doing this show in Pittsburgh. I can't fly out. And he's like, we we think you should fly out. We'll, we'll get you a hotel. Now I'm like, mm, mm. and then I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm nominated for both stage magician of the year and lecture of the year. So maybe they, you know, that's pretty significant. Maybe they want me there for that. So I fly out and I'm sitting in the audience and I am so convinced I have not won. I have not a speech and I have had too many drinks. And then they announce, <laughs> I, I know, then they announce I've won again. And I was just like, well, fuck, like <laughs> I don't have a speech. <laughs> so I go up, but it was nice because this time I got to like do the party and the speech and the, and all that, which was so lovely. And I didn't get to have the first time. Uh, and my speech, I don't remember it, but mostly my speech was like, Simon Cornell had just won for uh, Close Up, who was a good friend of mine. And so I said, uh, ditto what Simon said. Uh, thank you so much. You know, the castle means so much to me. And also huge thanks to, you know, the long gone Max Maven who passed away recently. Because if you don't think him on this stage, you're getting super haunted. And then I left because I was like, that's all I got. <laughs> that's all I got. Um, <laughs> But it, it feels amazing to, to be so beloved by that membership. Like, it's one thing to be respected by your peers. It's another thing to be respected by people that, like, you feel weird even calling your peers. You know, like, the membership of the Magic Castle are elite, accomplished, passionate magicians. And also, like, some of the most interesting, kind, ambitious, weird people I've ever met. So it's like, these are not just my peers. These are, like the creme de la creme <laughs> and they're like you we pick you uh, why <laughs> i why um <laughs> yeah so it's it's amazing it is the greatest possible feeling that is so amazing the first time i ever saw you was on pen and teller fool us and that's when i was introduced to you and i think there's a lot of people who that was their first introduction to Lucy. Um, what was that experience like? And, and I'm I'm happy to finally nerd out with someone who actually did that. So what what was that experience like being on Fool Us and trying to fool Penn and Teller? 
So I will say I, my experience is very different than most people's experience. I, I coach a lot of other people or not coach so much. It's like I help a lot of other people who do the show now uh, and watching their experience. I see how different what happened to me was, which was that um, I got a call the week before. Hey, can you do the show? So a lot of people you get, you know, six months in advance, you're doing the show. People have six months of rewrites. They write with the producers and go back and forth. Um, a week before they're like, hey, can you send us your script? We'd love you to do the show. I send them the script. They go, it's no good because they had never seen the character really. They didn't. They just were like, we hear, we hear they're great. Hire them. Uh, they're like, we don't like the script. It's confusing. And I was like, cool. And uh, oh, I, I was like, what do you want? And they were like, more funny. And I literally added one joke, and they were like, it's perfect. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> and it was genuinely like, we hate it. It's done. It was because it was a week away. Um, and I didn't have anything cause I was, I was between shows. So I, I didn't have, I had the wig with me, but I didn't have the prop. I didn't have, I had the dress. I didn't have the shoes. So I, I was at target the day of the shoot, like buying shoes and in my hotel room, building the props. Like I had no, you know, so there was no time to be nervous. And also like, I've known Penn for a lot of my life because he's a, he's an old sideshow guy. Right. So I've known him through the sideshow world. And so I'm not like nervous to perform in front of them and think in the same way a lot of people were. But what I did get into my head is, wow, Penn has never seen me do this Lucy Darling thing. He knows me as a sideshow guy. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to fool him into not knowing who I am. And that'll be my that'll be my whole angle is like, oh, I didn't fool you with a trick, but I fooled you with my whole personality. And uh, and I go out and I stand there next to my table and they're setting the shot. And I look over at Penn and he's sitting in his chair and he looks at me. And he just sort of nods and then he gives me a little wave and he looks over at Teller and he goes, Teller, look, it's Carissa. And I'm like, well, fuck, that was my one angle. <laughs> and, and so like to me, I had lost even before I started because that was the whole fun of it. And then it was great. Like the producers were great and it was great to shoot. But it was, you know, it was over. It really was like you're on there for six minutes. It was so fast. It was so nothing. And also like it was a big wake up call because when I saw it, it was okay, but I thought I did a way better job than the way it had, the way it looked when it aired. And I realized, oh, I was performing to the room and ignoring the cameras. Like I hadn't learned to scale Lucy down. And it was a, it was a big learning experience to be like, okay, if I want to do TV, I need to learn how to do TV. And then gratefully, we had a global pandemic and everyone learned how to behave for the camera because you had That's to. That's true. Uh, mm -hmm. And so since then, I've done like Masters of Illusion a lot, and I'm really happy with my clips from Masters of Illusion. I mean, you know, no one's super happy with the editing on that show because they, they have to do a lot of editing. And, you know, you people don't, whether it's good or bad doesn't matter. People don't like having their stuff edited, um, but they do their best. But I'm always really happy with my clips, mostly because I see myself doing a good job of being a TV performer and knowing that's the skill that I've developed in the last three years since Penn & Teller. So that's nice. Carissa, this has been incredibly generous of you, and I just have one final question, and this is sure. the this is the same question that I ask everyone at the end. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you'd like everyone else to hear? That is such a good question. Okay, so this advice came from one of my early mentors um, when I was trying to decide, you know, who to be, what to do. This is very early on. But one of the things she said to me is that everyone, and I repeat this all the time. If you've heard me say this, this was not my thing. This was given, this is a gift I was given in my early 20s, is that everyone gets to define success for themselves. So 
uh, I often feel weird that like some awards mean a lot to me, but some awards just don't. And I want them to, and I feel bad about it because I'm like, maybe they should give it to someone who would like, would mean more to it. Anyway, I have a lot of complex feelings about like external validation, but the, but it doesn't matter because I get to decide what success looks like for me. And for a lot of my career success was, I want the respect of my peers. I want to be comfortable. I want to have like just enough money that I don't have to worry about money. I want, I want this, I want that. And the more I continue with my career, the truth is, is like, I want like success is I get to go on cool adventures and on a day-to-day basis, I feel good and peaceful and successful. And I just feel that way. Like that's, that's what success is for me that on the inside of my body, it just feels correct. Like every day I wake up and I go, yeah, this is the thing I'm supposed to be doing and I'm doing it the way I'm supposed to be doing it. Um, and that was such a great piece of advice because I think part of the trouble with show business is that there is no boss and, and, you know, it's hard to know when you're doing a good job all the time. And it's hard to, you know, people always go like, what's next for you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? What's next for me? This is now I'm in the now, <laughs> like show business is a now thing. And I know so many people are like, Oh, one day I want to do a show on Broadway. Well, good for you. You get to define success for yourself. But are you saying that because you genuinely want that and all the things that come with it? Are you saying that because that seems like the next step? And so it's been such a great thing over the last 20 years in show business to constantly ask myself, is this success for me? Is this how I define success? Is this going to feel like it's for me? And if it's not, that's also okay. It's totally okay for it to just not be for me. Hmm. Great piece of advice. Carissa, Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and I wish you so much success and much love to you and everything else that comes for you moving forward. Thank you. That's so kind. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely incredible. You know, what she said is so correct. Define success as it relates to you. This is a lesson I'm constantly learning and relearning for myself, and it's so great to get that reminder. Thank you, Carissa, for spending this time with me and for being such a kind and lovely person. My friends, please visit her website, carissahendricks.com, to learn more about Carissa, see photos and videos, and to find out about her tour schedule and for show bookings. And also check out her YouTube channel, Carissa Hendricks, to watch some of her amazing performances. And while you're on YouTube, you can also visit my channel called LD Madeira Magic to check out some of my magic performances. And don't forget to visit TogetherByMyself.com to learn about my solo improv show. If you're enjoying this podcast, and I hope you are, feel free to leave a review and share this with your friends who enjoy improv, magic, or just like listening to podcasts in general. I always enjoy spending this time with you, my friends. I hope you do too, and I'll catch you next time right here on Improv and Magic.